This is Auto Line This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. Auto Line This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Hi, I'm John McElroy, and thanks for joining us on Auto Line This Week. Today's topic is all about entrepreneurs. How do you become an entrepreneur? How do you engender an entrepreneurial culture, really? We've got three experts who are ready to talk about this, including Kanjan Desai. He's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Alchemy, which is a nanotechnology startup. We've got Helga Sietzen. He's the CEO of a company called Tandem Launch. They're a startup foundry, as they call it, or an incubator, really, all uh, focused on multimedia. And then we have Adrian Cote. He's the executive director of a company called Velocity, which does early seed investing for startups. And thanks for joining me here today. Uh, I'm going to throw out the first question. Kanjan, why don't we start with you? What's, what is it about entrepreneurs that separate them from other people? I mean, lots of people talk about starting a company and, and, and the like, but it takes, I think, a certain personality to be an entrepreneur. What do you think sets such entrepreneurs apart from others? I think it's the need to make a difference. Um, uh, it's essentially you see a problem, you want to, uh, you you have a solution in mind, but you just want to exercise the maximum amount of control uh, and influence on uh, implementing and commercializing that solution. So uh, I generally think, uh, I mean, there are comical answers to that as well, but uh, I think that the core is really the need to make a difference. Okay, Adrian, it's part of it is wanting to make a difference. What else do you think separates entrepreneurs from the rest? Yeah, problem solvers and builders. I, I think we work with a lot of a lot of individuals that are really keen on making an impact in the world and they want to do it on their terms. And then as well, you know, they have tons of creative energy and great technical ideas and, and strategize. And just these are the people that are going to get the best innovation out in the world. That's what I believe. Helga, what do you think? Yeah, I think both of those answers are spot on. Maybe uh, to add a bit of color, uh, not just what makes people want to be an entrepreneur, but what makes them a successful entrepreneur. You know, wanting to be an entrepreneur is exactly what Adrian and Kanchan just said. Um, being a successful entrepreneur is the ability to make events happen. It's the ability to um, uh, not not just want to have that impact and want to build something, but rally others around that mandate uh, and enable it, execute it, and change, affect real change rather than just dreaming of them. Lots of people want to make a change, and lots of people are excited about ideas, but not many people move on them. Helga, why not? What, what is it about entrepreneurs that they, they you know, cut the, the safety ropes and take the plunge into doing it on their own? Uh, yeah, so it's exactly about this part about being having the ability to create events. So if you want to, if you want to make something happen, uh, the first step is vulnerability, right? It's not just cutting the safety cord, which is an economic aspect, but it's it's putting yourself out there, talking to other people about an idea that will get, you know, not necessarily ridiculed, but certainly be criticized, that will have lots of wrinkles because it's just in its early stages. And making yourself vulnerable in that respect is, is really uh, uncomfortable for a lot of people. And then there's the risk, you know, economic risk and, and reputational risk and all those other things. And you have to be able to uh, take all that discomfort and, and get over it. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck and you know and then there's practical things like you have to raise money and things like that but most people i find get stuck long before that uh, mm -hmm. and it's a self-imposed uh, hurdle essentially what do you think on john 
I think I think to some extent there is also just a, a calculated risk you take. Uh, so for myself, I started my company in my in my twenties, and I knew that if I got it wrong, the worst thing I was going to lose was a couple of years of my life in my twenties, and I could just go back into corporate life right away. Um, and for others I know who have started their companies in their thirties and forties, it's all often a calculated risk in the form of having a partner who is can be the can support the family or having enough savings so that you can invest the time uh, into your into your startup. So. I agree. I think uh, to, to some level, you have to be uh, uh, able to take uh, the plunge and uh, accept that you're going to be learning a lot on the job. Um, and you won't know 99% of the things that you need to do to be successful at your job. But it's about learning and trying and going out there and being okay with failing and iterating as well. What do you think, Adrian? I mean, uh, yeah, both of those answers I, I agree with. And I think with, with Velocity, we're, we're very much an incubator. Uh, you know, we are founded by the University of Waterloo. And, um, and I think I, in as much as we can introduce people as they start to explore, introduce the concepts of entrepreneurship and what it actually means from a practical level uh, as, as early as possible and when they might be thinking about starting something up or if they're just curious about innovation let's demystify that process as fast as possible um so those that may be on the edge of wanting to try something or not try something can do it in the most informed way and i think i think we can unlock a lot of opportunity and a lot of innovation in this world by by doing more of that adrian what is it about uh some people have very successful careers in the corporate world mm -hmm. they decide they want to make a, a jump to a startup we in fact, we're seeing this right now in the automotive industry with EV startups. They're very successful in the corporate world. They go into a startup and they flounder. A lot of them fall flat on their face. Why is that, do you think? Well, I think the the, the approach to delivering innovation through a large enterprise is different than delivering innovation by building a company. And, uh, you know, there's there's good overlap between the types of behaviors you need to have. You need to be able to, you want to, you got to drive at something, you got to like rally resources to yourself. But how you do that in a large company is different than how you do it as an independent founder building a startup. Mm -hmm. Helga, what, what can you add to that? Yeah, it's, there, there's a challenge when you've, when you've built your professional skill set um, on the strength of the brand and reputation of the company that you've worked at uh, and then come to a startup and it just that that like safety wheel isn't there, right? And uh, it's not necessarily that startups are harder or easier, or you know, like corporate careers are just you know very difficult too. It's just th there's a huge difference. Let's say you're you're a sales leader and you work at IBM, right? Uh, every place you call will pick up your phone because they see IBM pop up on the call display and. And, you know, when you say something like, we will sell you this product for $50,000, everybody will just assume that it's going to get delivered and it's warranted and it's supported and you won't even have to sell that. It will just be built in, right? And when that same human being with the same skill sets then comes in the startups, makes that same phone call to that same customer, step one, the phone call won't get picked up because it's some random number and they go, like, what the hell is this? And then step two, they've got to ramble on about what their company does and who they are and people will be like, oh, wow, this is never going to get supported. And so the same activity gets a lot harder because all you have is your personal skill sets. You don't have that sort of support infrastructure, that brand, that, that reputation of your, of your large institution. 
And this is particularly true, you mentioned automotive. So a, a good number of our companies that we've built uh, are in the automotive sector. We, uh, one of them got acquired a little bit ago by Farisha and a bunch of others that are heavily involved with automotive players. And the auto industry is almost an extreme of this, right? Because the, the automotive sort of, uh, you know, manufacturer, tier one, tier two supply chain is, uh, is very kind of a closed community. Uh, reputation matters a lot. Every time, every time I talk to anybody at a tier one, they go, well, these are the good car companies are the bad car companies. And everybody talks to somebody at a car maker, they say the same about the tier ones and tier twos and, um, and people sort of rotate through that ecosystem. So uh, that people don't even realize that they have all these massive reputational benefits behind them until they come to startup and then everybody ignores them. And that can be harsh. They can also be harsh on the person. I've seen this a lot where, where people jump into the entrepreneurial sphere and they get totally disillusioned very quickly because everybody's so mean to them. <laughs> <laughs> Kajan, what can you add to it? Yeah, I, I think there are three elements to it. The first is really the idea. Uh, some ideas are easier to uh, start a company around. Others require a significant amount of infrastructure. Uh, some ideas are riskier. Some ideas uh, have a higher or lower probability of success. The second is execution in my head, which is uh, uh, really, uh, can you execute on the idea? Can you hire the people you need? Can you build a team and lead the team, set the right product development roadmap, commercialization strategy, fundraising, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that is usually the meat of it is really there. Are, you see multiple uh, different companies go after the same idea, but some fail to execute and some do. Uh, and the third, I think, is just luck. Uh, sometimes your timing is wrong. Sometimes the right person uh, notices you. Uh, and generally, I think it, you know we can see the same idea have very different uh, outcomes. And usually, I find it's execution and luck that factor in. Kaijan, what's the biggest mistake most entrepreneurs make? What you know? What is it when you look at a, a company and you see something, you go, "Uh oh, this doesn't look good." Um, I think I, I generally don't look at uh, companies. I, I typically look at the founders and. Uh, I find it's usually founders who make the mistake of listening to uh, very generic uh, or flyby advice. Um, each company is different. Each, even the same idea will have different teams, different strategies, uh, different business models. And so it's really important to trust your gut, in my opinion, and not listen to the, the, the group thing uh, that might be out there. Um, so for us, uh, once we kind of, you know, figured out our own path, we just felt more and more comfortable, uh, even though it wasn't the standard VC path, it wasn't the standard, uh, you know, uh, growth model as well. Um, so I think it's just at the end of the day, you have to trust your own, own instincts, do your own research and, uh, and just go with that because that's something that you can't regret. Uh, but uh, you could kick yourself uh, for listening uh, to someone else that may not have meant anything, uh, anything malicious. We're trying to help you, but just you know, didn't know any better at that time. Adrian, do you see any common mistake that uh, entrepreneurs make? Well, I'll, I'll speak to it from like the very, very early start of the journey where you're, um, where you have a group or a team just really thinking about a technology that could be helpful in the world. And, um, and even before perhaps a company is even incorporated is, is just being sure that they're thinking about how, how, their customers will ultimately buy it and will they buy it? I think sometimes we see at the very, very early stages, um, companies form there where they're really indexed around building the technology and not doing that lockstep with what 
what the customer will ultimately buy. But then at the same time, teams that do it properly and, and really figure out quickly how what what customers will buy, um, they just they do well. Mm-hmm. Alga, what can you add to it? <laughs> well, I uh, started my first startup uh, in my undergrad, and then and it was a deep technology play, and built you know a series of companies, and now you know building more companies in our business model. And so I've, I've made just about every mistake you can probably make and, and nevertheless sort of got to it. Um, so it's a long list that we can probably spend the whole rest of, this, of the episode going through those, uh, to those mistakes. But losing, um, losing line of sight of what matters is a, is a typical one. I think the, uh, the stack order, there's some argument whether um, you know, customer come first or team comes first. But those two are clearly at the top of the of the list. You know, product comes underneath that, and technology comes underneath that, and that hurts my soul as a deep tech entrepreneur. But it is just factually that's the stack order, right? And and uh, making sure that every day you work on something that is up on that stack, that you find the right people to join you, or that you find the right customer and position towards that. Um, it's it's a skill set, and you know, and it's very easy, and it speaks to what we talked about earlier about that risk and the exposure, those are also the scarier parts, right? Because customers can say no to you and team members can walk out on you. Whereas if all you do is sit on a computer and type in code, it, it can't talk back, right? Worst case, you get a debug kind of situation. Uh, and, and so never losing sight of that is, I think, key. And conversely, the mistake a lot of people make is turtle and just focus on the stuff that they can easily control. Mm-hmm. Helga, you mentioned, you know, you, you wish technology was at the top of the list, but it's not. Uh, and yet most entrepreneurs are technical people. You know, they, they've come up with some new kind of product or service or the like. What are the signs that an entrepreneur uh, should be on the lookout for when it's time for him or her to turn the reins over to somebody else that can really run the business? Yeah, so we... In, in our business model, we synthetically form teams and of, of both technologists and commercial operators and, and, and so forth. And so this is something we ask ourselves all the time, right? We, because we have, you know, we're not, our, our ventures are not organically grown, they're synthetically created. And so we have you know, editors control as it were over, over how we compose the teams. And it's a very delicate balance because you want, um, you want a continuous, a voice of the technology domain in the strategic thinking of your company. Um, but you want equally a voice of the sort of corporate side, you know, people, finance, the worst, and you want a voice of, of the customer side, right? And, and, and blending those is critical. Uh, I, I think um, my instinct is you have to step back when you lose the ability to recruit talent above you. Um, and so there's sort of a natural, uh, uh, you know, as a company scales, there's a natural break point where the talent that you can attract will at some point be rate limited by your own skill set, right? And so if you find yourself making concessions, for example, in the sales leadership that you're attracting because, you know, the, the really high tier salespeople don't want to work for someone like you that just doesn't appreciate their domain, then it's time to move on. But not move on necessarily out of your company, but but yeah. you know bring in a partner who can build a commercial organization at that stage. Um, but of course, that is only relevant when you're actually at the stage of selling, right? If you're deep in the R&D stage, that's less a critical uh, restriction. Right. right, Adrian. What what kind of uh, warning signs would you suggest to an entrepreneur uh, who should decide to become the CTO, not the CEO? 
Yeah, I, I'm, I might take a different view to this because we work um, we work very much with technical founders and we, we love working with technical founders. And I think, you know, uh, of the companies that have been supported by Velocity, most of those founders have remained in the key leadership roles of their companies. So I think there's a, a really good, you know, pathway for, and Ken Jam was speaking to this about like finding your own way to build your company and, and knowing yourselves and, and, and taking that knowledge of yourself and figuring out how to fill the gaps. So I think, I, I think uh, technical founders are great. And, and, and I, we, we can, because they're going to be also the ones that are really passionate about the technology. They're going to be the ones that have lived it. And I believe people have the capability to, to move beyond that technical orientation and, and, and move to also be really great operators from the business side. Kajan, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think uh, generally speaking, I mean, we, we kind of perform an uh, internal assessment on an annual basis, my co-founder and I, uh, because our, our core value is that, or, or thesis is that our job is to deliver value to our shareholders. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, as the biggest shareholders in the company, we want to make sure that we are not getting in our own way. Um, so uh, th as the company matures and goes through its growth curve, as uh, Helga was mentioning, uh, what you need to do as a CEO or a CTO changes. Uh, in the early days, you're often trying to build a technology. As a CEO, you're trying to fundraise. You're, you generally don't have a product team, so you're the product manager by default. Uh, but as you turn that corner and start focusing on revenue growth, uh, you need to hire people to, uh, or, or, uh, to surround you uh, with the with the responsibilities that you're not great at. So being self-aware and recognizing your own shortcomings. So in our case, uh, I, I, I've taken the time to realize that, yes, I can lead our revenue generating operations, but it would be better off for me to have a chief revenue officer whose focus is to re lead both, uh, all of our growth operations. Uh, and so it's really important to be self-aware, but at some point you have to uh, look at yourself and ask, are you growing slower than your business needs to grow? And are you the person limiting it? And if so, it's time for you to step aside, as Helga mentioned. And that's an assessment we perform on an annual basis, probably two times a year, my co-founder and I, uh, because it's really important as a, like, like I mentioned earlier, there are 99% of things that you will not have the skill set for when you start a company. And so either you have to learn them quickly enough or you need to step aside and, and help have someone else uh, perform that responsibility for you. As you all know, it's a lot of fun to be around entrepreneurs. I mean, they're so positive. They just exude confidence. You know, they're always upbeat. But we've also, again, coming back to the automotive industry, seen this in uh, some of the startups. They overpromise. I mean, they get out ahead of their skis, so to speak. Uh, what kind of advice can you give to entrepreneurs of maintaining a balance between, of course, you got to be positive. You've got to be pushing forward all the time but also approach it with a sense of reality. You, I mean, you I'll, I'll take, I'll, go ahead. ahead. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll go at this right away because obviously in the automotive industry, uh, there is the, the snake oil salesman term, uh, right? And, and it comes from over-promising and under-delivering. So, uh, I mean, uh, we, we in our particular industry as well and segment, our competitors have made that mistake and that's exactly where we've stuck to being uh, humble and uh, under-promising, over-delivering, and uh, consistently just focusing on caring about the customer. So it's really about if your customer is happy with your with you, then your company is going to be successful at the end of the day. And uh, so managing expectations is very, very critical. So always under-promise, over-deliver. Uh, I mean, the answer was in your in your question there, uh, but that's what we focused on, and it's helped us become the the leader in our category 
uh, within a very short amount of time, uh, just because the market has grown to trust us. In our industry as well, we, we get uh, a successful customer, a happy customer in Colorado will give us a, a, a referral to someone in Alberta, Canada, or across the world in, in Qatar. And so we, we've learned that our industry is so interconnected that if you get something wrong, the word will spread very quickly. And the automotive industry is notorious for that. So it's very, very important uh, to make sure you start off on the right foot and don't mm -hmm. uh, get your, you know, talk yourself into a corner. Anyone else want to add to that? Yeah, I, I think the, um, uh, the degree to which you can be ambitious in your promises, um, uh, never, never make promises that you have no hope of achieving, right? But there's a there's a range of ambition where you you know adding a bit more uncertainty into your promise as you're making it. Um, that that slider depends very much on the audience and on the consequence of failure to that audience, right? If you're if you're a part supplier or technology supplier into a very long design cycle industry like automotive. You have, you know, failure has catastrophic ripple effects both on your partner and on their ecosystem and therefore on you and your brand. And that's a no-go, right? On the other hand, if you're pitching, let's say, for a venture capital fund, they have some degree of disappointment baked into their calculus, right? It's just they, they understand that the risk is part of the equation. And, you know, VC funds don't sit there and go like, oh, my God, this company didn't eat their quarterly milestone. That has never happened to me in my entire history in my life. And it's horrifying, right? It's just it's par for the course. And so... You know, depending on your audience, you want to sort of dial in your uh, ambitiousness of your of your statement because you also need it. On the other hand, you need to, uh, you know, put stakes in the ground a little bit further towards down the slope to use your ski analogy, um, you know, hoping that you know you you throw the puck out and then hope to get where it's going. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Adrian. When I look at uh, entrepreneurs, uh, big successful ones, including the automotive industry, they're overwhelmingly men. Uh, and what what advice would you have of trying to get more women into this? And particularly, uh, women are one thing, but if you talk about Black Americans, Black Canadians, there's even fewer of them. What needs to be done to encourage more of them to get into uh, an entrepreneurial culture? Yeah, this is something that we at Velocity have, have uh, invested a lot of our energy in, in helping a, a more diverse group uh, enter into the entrepreneurship journey. And uh, it, it really boils down to, at least where we've worked on it, is, is making sure that the, the community and the culture that we are generating within the Velocity ecosystem is, is really inclusive. And, and what that means is that um, those that are, don't necessarily identify as male or um, identify as a Caucasian male um, can find their way through through our systems. And so they see other individuals that have been successful down this path. And being very attuned to um, um, the, the different approaches that different individuals will take to building a company. Um, and so we've been able to um, very humbly been able to increase the number of people that identify as female into the into velocity and and also uh, allying and working with other organizations that, for example, support Black entrepreneurship, um, so that we can we can learn from from their work and and support them as they wish uh, as they look to bring other other groups into the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Helga, you got anything to add to that? 
<laughs> well, you know I'm a I'm a trouble causer in that regard already, even in your in this very own taping, in this very own show. Yeah, let um, me say that. Helga didn't want to come on because it was only going to be men on the panel. Mm -hmm. But here's your chance to help rectify some of that. To help rectify that. Yeah, I, I do have so as as John mentioned, I have a, a standing policy to uh, you know, at, at the very least, uh, send a note of caution if I see an all-male uh, show or panel, uh, because I do think the first step is representation. Now, admittedly, I made that comment 24 hours before the show and didn't give you a lot of opportunity here, because that's the first time when I saw the attendee list. Uh, but um, uh, so I, I do think representation matters. And so in our shop, we are um, we're very deliberate about this topic. So uh, it's not just um, a kind of a conceptual value statement. We, uh, through very deliberate action, uh, Talmanch itself, my firm itself, is is fully blended 50-50 across the lines. And I, and I, you know, with all respect for, uh, you know, obviously we also have uh, non-binary components of ours, but we're, we're fully blended through the system. Um, we also pursue a similar approach, as I mentioned earlier, um, when we build companies, we actually compose the teams, so the vast majority of our teams have a, a, a diversity mix in them, whether it's by, you know, by self-identified gender or by ethnic, ethnic background or by, you know, other kind of elements. Um, and uh, as my my talent team knows, um, one of the ways to push on that as a CEO is is to be deliberate about it, whether it's on panels like this or in the hiring process. So one of the habits I have, for example, is uh, whenever we try to fill a position, um, I, uh, I generally don't start the interview process unless uh, the talent organization presents a blended slate. Uh, and, I, and I found you know, simple steps like that because it's, it can help tremendously because it's, otherwise it's very easy to slip into the sort of default track of ending up with an all white male trajectory. Yeah, look, I got a lot more questions here, but we're out of time, I'm afraid. I really appreciate your insights here. This is very good. I hope there's a bunch of people who are considering to be uh, entrepreneurs and have learned a thing or two. Kanjan, Helga, Adrian, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. AutoLine this week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.